0: All
1: right.
0: <laughs> my... Yeah, have fun. Mm-hmm.
1: Chris. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, we'll go ahead and get started here today. Thank you for having me back up here. I appreciate it. And uh, oops. Um, We'll be going through the book of 2 Timothy, if you haven't been with us. I think most of you probably have, and you were here when Jay went through the first two chapters, and then prior to that, Bennett and I think Kevin were through the other, or maybe Bennett and Chris were through, going through First Timothy, and um, I know last week we kind of had a, a mashup where Jay talked for most of it, and then I came in and did a little summary. Uh, as is our custom here, and by way of reminder, can we, can anybody bring up anything that we talked about last week, um, anything that stuck out to you, comments we discussed?
2: Okay.
0: Okay, well, what I, what I would like to do is kind of summarize again what the letter of 2 Timothy is really about, and I did some of this last week. If if you remember, I said to you that the book of Second Timothy is really a book of imperatives, and I referenced First Thessalonians 5. 1 um, Thessalonians five twenty one, when Paul says to Thess- the church at Thessalonica, "Hold fast to that which is good." And we, you know, I kind of said, well, "How do we know what is good?" Uh, you know, we have to be careful in defining that because you ask. A number of people today, you might get a number of different answers, and so I believe that Paul gives us really a blueprint in his letter to Timothy, particularly here in Second Timothy, as to how to do that. There are a multitude of imperatives, which we talked about. Those are just commands. Those are uh, statements where the subject is understood. Um, There's not even a noun in the body of the sentence because we know he's talking directly to the person he's writing it to, um, and which is Timothy. And you know, while it is written to Timothy, it's applicable to all of us. So what you have in front of you there is just a reference to each. One of the imperatives throughout the four verses or four chapters, excuse me, um, of Second Timothy, and I might have missed some. You can, you know, check my work and see if you find one or two that I didn't catch. But look at everything that Paul is commanding Timothy to do there. Commanding Timothy to do there. Do not be ashamed. Follow the pattern of the sound words. Guard the good deposit entrusted trust it to you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And trust what you have heard from me to faithful men. Share in suffering. I can. Continue to go on, but you get the point. Paul is really providing Timothy with instructions as to how to hold fast that which is good. Uh, really, if you wanted to put it in one word, the theme of uh, Second Timothy is perseverance. You know, how 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 do I persevere? How do I endure? Um, how do I remain faithful as a minister of the word of God even in the midst of difficult times and uh, persecution? Right. Uh, I know Jay mentioned this, but we know that Paul is writing this book when he is basically on his deathbed, and he, he knows that, right? This is going to be my last, uh, last go at it, and I want to make sure Timothy has the instructions to be able to fulfill the life of a faithful minister. Um, so as I've already said, the book of 2 Timothy, littered with imperatives, there are at least 18 of them there, uh, like I said, you might be able to find more. And in them, Paul is reminding Timothy of what it is that will get him through times of difficulty and what will allow him to be a faithful minister of the Word of God. While these commands were written to Timothy, they are applicable to all of us who desire to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Most of these commands are centered on remaining firm in the original message of hope and preaching the word. So several of the guys that have been up here teaching have mentioned how when you teach, you just get a deeper appreciation for the text. You know, you have to go deeper than if you're simply listening to somebody up here talking. And not that you know listening isn't beneficial, but uh, I can attest to that, and when I was preparing this, I was instantly brought back to uh, Colossians, which was the first book that I had the privilege to teach up here, because uh, basically when I talk about being rooted in something, the original message of hope, um, it brought me right back to the to the letter that Paul wrote to a church at Colossae. And so if you would, turn with me there for just a second, just four chapters behind Second Timothy. Um, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. I'm going to tie this into what we're talking about here today. But. Does anybody, before I even read this, does anybody remember kind of the the heresy, the, the false teaching that Paul was warring against when he was writing to the church at Colossae? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gnosticism was kind of the main one, right? Which was this idea that uh, once you become a Christian, that's good and all, but you really need to ascend to a higher place. Higher level of spirituality, um, you know, it's kind of akin to New Age spiritualism. Vicky, we talked about earlier today. You know, this idea that uh, really there's more to Christianity than simply accepting Jesus' death and resurrection as as atoning your, for your sin. Uh, you need to basically, you know, ascend to a higher level. And until you've done that, you're still kind of on the junior varsity team for, as Chris, as a Christian. And Paul is outwardly refuting that, and in verse six, he says, "Therefore." As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus, right? So it's it's the way you were taught from the beginning, rooted. Which that the imagery there is that you know you're connected to the very origins of something and built up and is in Him and established again, kind of the foundation, right? Established in the faith, just as you were taught. Uh, that's very reminiscent of Paul's words to Timothy in chapter three, which we'll get to in just a bit, but. In chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to go back to Second Timothy, or actually that, that particular verse is on your list of imperatives there, I believe. What does he say in, in chapter 3, verse 14? Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And he even says, uh, let me read it from the text here, continue uh, in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. I think that's a reference to Eunice and, and uh, um, Lois as a grandmother. Mother and grandmother. Basically, don't be distracted. You know, what's Jay been talking about the last few weeks is don't go down these rabbit trails of false teaching and don't you know be allured by something new and different. Stay centered in the word of God. In chapter four, Paul tells Timothy preach the word in season and out of season, right? There's this constant calling back to what he already has. And this is good news, not only for Timothy, but for us, because it means that the gospel is not incredibly complicated. You know, there's not a, you don't have to be, uh, have a PhD in, you know, theology or, you know, get a a doctorate from seminary in order to be a born-again saved Christian. Um, This is a simple message. Well, I think the desire to know more about God's word and understand him better should be characteristic of all Christians. It's not that you have to pursue some, you know, intellectual rabbit trail in order to be considered a born-again Christian. Paul is constantly calling Timothy back to the word of God, just like he did to the church in Colossae. Where he's saying, "Don't be distracted by this Gnostic, you know, nonsense. Um, you know, you have everything you need." He says it to the Corinthians, "We preach Christ and Him crucified." Right? I'm determined to know nothing amongst you except that. And so, uh, this is really Paul's instruction manual to Timothy as to how to hold fast to that which is good and how to persevere in the times of difficulty. And what is what are the instructions? Simply to stay firm in what you believe. Right. So, any thoughts or comments? Uh, I love I love it when it's interactive. So, anybody have any uh, comments at this point? I know we haven't even gotten into the text yet, but so as you're reading this today, kind of kind of be thinking about that. You know, this is really Paul's reminder to how to endure, how to persevere. Um, and again, while it's written to Timothy, it's it's applicable to us. So let's get into the text. What I'll do is I'll read verses one through nine in chapter three, and then we'll uh, I'll open it up for questions or comments again. Chapter three, verse one. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So again, as is customary here, uh, what Stuck out to you? Will grab your attention? Any thoughts or questions on the text that we just read? Yeah, I figure that might come up, and I think he is. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, especially the term "last days." There, but go ahead.
3: Uh, it actually reminds me of Romans one, just how he lists off sins and sins that will describe or that will characterize like. A godless culture, mm-hmm. and with that in mind, it does grab my attention that both Romans one and this passage includes disobedient the parents. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, like, I'll be honest, you know, growing up, I was unfortunately rather disrespectful to my parents and disobeying my parents, and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. But like Scripture does view it as a really big deal. Um, it's almost like you know, among other sins that are that, that it's going to characterize a godless culture, things like you know, homosexuality and idolatry, and you know. Also, disobedient parents. And like, I wish I had gotten that at like 14. It would woken me up to the seriousness of
0: not obeying my parents. Sure. That is um, just reminds me of the book that the men are reading for breakfast, the, the War on Men. And I don't know if a couple of you are in here that are be reading that, but they talking about the way in which God has set the, up the family for his own purposes. And, you know, in order to, to really wreak havoc on society, tear down the family and particularly the authority that parents have and fathers have in the, in the household. So, yeah. And that, is definitely characteristic of people today, right? So, what else? Go ahead, Bennett.
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, one that caught my attention. Uh, it describes the kind of Christianity where it, it, it has a form of godliness, yeah. Mm. denies the power. There's no power, right. There's no right it's very significant because you know when you talk to people yeah, some people believe in some form of God, mm-hmm. but you can see that it's just than you we don't believe in the God and Christ of the Bible. Either. It's nothing that you're talking about so very, uh, in Colossians 2 to So they're very present in having
0: a form of godliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially, especially in a culture where Christianity is still, I mean, like it's becoming increasingly less popular to be a Christian, but we're not, let's be honest, not really persecuted the way many. Uh, many people have been throughout history so you know to have a form of godliness and i would even argue that for the majority of american history it's been uh kind of popular and and beneficial to be considered a christian you know you're if you have a form of godliness you know that's actually um you know maybe a step up in society now maybe that's diminishing as we continue to see you know more forms of evil wreak havoc in our society but it does seem like to have a form of godliness was actually admirable and you know uh, something that you would desire to have. You're in business and you want to be considered honest and a man of integrity. You, you know, put your hand on the Bible and that gives you a little bit of a, uh, some, some credence or something like that, right? And so, yeah, and we definitely see it today, forms of godliness where, um, you know, people are, you know, they, 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 have a sense of morality, but kind of lack the power of God. You, you see it in the uh, court
2: system. People place their hands on the mm-hmm. Bible mm-hmm. and, and vow at- Yeah, right. A lot, yeah.
0: You know, uh then the like, corruption everywhere. Even our presidential inauguration, which you gotta kinda wonder how long that's gonna last, right? We're gonna we put our hand on the Bible. But anyway, um, yeah, absolutely. And I don't anticipate getting to that text today, just a lot to go through in the first couple of uh verses here, but we'll definitely talk more about that in the weeks to come. The appearance of godliness denying its power. Go ahead, Vicky. Um
1: recklessness. It just seems especially like on YouTube and I mean, recklessness is so glorified Mm. in all kinds of ways, whether it's finances, doing stuff on skateboards, Mm
0: snowboards
1: it just astounds me how much that's glorified.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that one before, yeah, the recklessness that we kinda do glorify that. Go ahead, Kevin.
1: Yeah, I think you know,
3: like like everyone's been saying, you know, as far as this sort of being characteristic of Of our world or culture that we live in. But I think what Paul is also saying is that these are characteristics of some who are in the church in terms of teachers. Uh, You know, I think Paul uh, uh, could be referencing uh, these as characteristics of false teachers. Uh You know, he talks about uh, always learning, never able to arrive at the truth, corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. um, and then he goes in verse ten. He says, "You Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my." He seems to be contrasting um, a life of a false, a false teacher versus a true teacher. Mm-hmm. What they should follow. Um, I. What are your
1: thoughts?
0: No, no, I definitely do think, in context, and I want to talk about that in a second here. That he is talking about. I mean, what uh, the life of a somebody again? That phrase having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I think implies that the person that is he's describing cool. here kind of wants to be associated with godliness. It's not somebody who's, you know, an, an atheist that's trying to deny the faith. It's somebody who is maybe subtly, you know, disguising themselves as an angel of light, right? So I don't, I don't know if it's strictly limited to teachers, you know, it might just be people that want to identify as Christians, but I definitely think in context, I mean, what Paul's been saying going all the way back to chapter 2 has been really about, you know, avoiding this, this pursuit of false teaching and staying centered in what you know is true um, and so I, I think he's picking up on that here. And actually, that's a good segue into what I was going to say. The first thing I would want to draw our attention to is that word, but, right? The very first word of the chapter, uh, but. So it's important to remember that chapter and verse distinctions are a later development, right? Paul Paul did not write Second Timothy in four chapters. If you went to Paul and said, hey, I really appreciated what you had to say in chapter 3, he would have said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He just wrote a letter to Timothy, Right. Now, I think they're helpful. They're helpful for all kinds of reasons. We can you know, cite things much easier. We can find text much easier. But remember that in the original text, there was no four chapters in 2 Timothy. It was just one continuous letter. And so, again, while I think that's helpful, it can lead us to read things you know, out of context sometimes. And you know, we stop for a devotional for the day. And we pick up the next day, kind of forget what we read before. Um, we hear people do this all the time with individual verses, right? Like, Maybe Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and somehow that means I can ace a test I didn't study for or dunk a basketball if I'm five foot two. You know, th- this is we're talking here about um, the, just the chapter and verse distinction. So, but is a conjunction, right? It's conjoining two ideas, and and the word but is it's a modifier or it's an additive statement or a clarifying statement or it's gonna you know, we're gonna make a clarifying statement. You know, I could say I like pineapples, but I don't like pineapples on pizza. And what have I done? But I've, I've clarified the first statement, I've made another statement that adds to what I've already stated. Uh, So it's important to remember that. And when we look at chapter three here and we see the word but, which is the first word, we really need to go back to chapter two to understand uh, what he's adding to or what he's clarifying. And I kind of got into it a little bit because Kevin brought up the point that I think he's talking about in context here. False teachers are those who would claim to be believers, uh, basically have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. So what has... Paul been talking about and I'll give you another opportunity to kind of remind us of what we've been discussing you know something that stuck out to you over the last couple of weeks anything Jay you can you can go yeah
3: trying to draw you away the truth
0: yeah look at the imperatives that I gave you on your list right there you know there, there's chapter two verse 15, do your best to present, I'm sorry, verse, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Verse 22, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You um, can even say that it's part of the imperative there in verse 24, uh, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, be able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting your opponents with gentleness. All right? Paul is uh, reminding Timothy not to be distracted by these endless controversies that are irreverent in, in their um, in their scope, and not only that, but to face the opposition with kindness, with patience, with gentleness, uh, to be respectful in the way they respond to people. Uh, one of the things that's interesting here, and I, I don't know what y'all think about this. You're welcome to comment, but it, it almost seems as if Paul, if it, again, go back up to verse two or chapter two. I'm sorry, uh, verses 24 through 25. I believe God's sovereign totally in his his election, and he's called those whom he will. He'll lose none of them. And it almost seems that Paul is telling Timothy to behave this way so that God may grant them repentance. In other words, he's he's saying, you know, be gentle, uh, endure evil patiently, be kind to everyone. Who knows? God may grant them repentance. In other words, you know, why would those two statements be linked together? And if Paul's not saying, it's like, if you don't act this way, there's almost less of a likelihood that God will grant them repentance, right? Um, and I think He is getting at the idea that if all you ever do is criticize people, you know, bash people, find what's wrong with certain teaching, even though that could be totally true, uh, you will come across as kind of condescending, belittling, holier than thou, and like push people away from ever hearing what you have to say. Uh, and I don't want to fall into the ditch on the other side of the road and say, okay, we're just never going to push back against anything at all because basically, you know, we we don't want to. We don't, we don't want to maybe not let God grant them repentance. Obviously, we're called to defend the faith. Obviously, we're called to be firm in the truth. But it, it almost seems like Paul is saying here you know, the likelihood of God granting somebody repentance is diminished if you don't act according to these principles. Uh, your thoughts or comments on that particular idea? Go ahead. Yeah, I think
3: it's definitely true from a human perspective. I mean, obviously, God does whatever he pleases. And some of that we don't really fully really comprehend. There's a lot of mystery there. But as far as our responsibility goes, we employ god's method is not like what seems like a good idea you know it seems like a good idea to just like you know crush people in arguments and like you know destroy them that's not the method that god chooses to use and bless instead it's this gentle faithful communication of the truth that god uses to call people into himself so while well, yes we recognize that god can do whatever he pleases at the end of the day his plans well can't be afforded and so far it's up to us we follow what god is tells us to do. He tells us to just patiently, gently communicate the truth and make the results up to him. Um, so I think you're right. I think there is a human tendency to kind of rely on like what seems like it would work to us. You know, I do want to lie like a tendency toward pragmatism. And I mean, we think in our fallen flesh, that like the way I'm really going to convince somebody to embrace Jesus is just to, you know, psychologically pressure them and hound them until like, you know, that they, they, they submit. Which in reality will just you know alienate them even further. So you know, instead we trust God. We employ the methods God has commanded to us. We leave the results up to God. but God will you know say that we will. Um, While recognizing still all you said about the sovereignty of God is
1: still true. It's just kind of like balance. Sure. Yeah. Ahead, Carol. She also says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me." So how Mm -hmm. can we fully repent if God really isn't
0: listening because we're so full
1: of pride in ourselves or before the trial or whatever? We need to do this in with his terms, not ours. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about it's not about us when we're arguing with someone or whatever, it's about God. Mm-hmm. And when we get our pride in there and our bad notice to like maybe receive the glory to what the argument, or I'm mm-hmm. smarter than you, or I know the word one or whatever. Mm-hmm. Any of that takes away from God's glory. Mm-hmm. And we think it makes us look good, but it, it doesn't. It, it's an obstacle it's a, for someone else coming to hear the truth and have a receptive heart, which is why I get like I say, like, how can we even fully repent if we're so full of pride and, and sin? And even though we think we're zealous for good, when we are in that mindset, we're not. Yeah. our hearts are wrong. That's what they've stumbled You know,
2: that's just
0: it, yeah. It's very almost Pharisaical, right? I mean, kind of the way that they behave. Yeah, go ahead, Bennett. Another yeah.
2: example that comes to Daniel, one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even though he didn't want to eat the king's fruit, why he said yeah. this politeness, this pluck. Uh-huh. And Daniel and his friends' testimony said that even when he was put in the land and, and he came out on scale, the king said the God of Daniel should be the God of the land. You know? sure. And Daniel yeah. didn't use any you know, very hawkish brutal, you know, he just did his things mm-hmm. just like a Christian mm-hmm. gentle, you know, and then he did his prayer meetings and what have you. Yeah. And he still made great an impact. So I think that's an example of how you should respond when people are we live in a very hostile culture. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it's it's I mean this is totally contra- contrary to our political environment today, right? I mean I, I understand that, you know, we we have the right free speech and we want to be, you know, we want to exercise that, but think about kind of what Paul is saying to Timothy here. You know, the best way to, to win people over is to present the truth sternly. Like, I'm not talking about compromising on the truth, but, you know, to do it in love. And I, I think sometimes because, and I see this a lot from people who maybe don't have a, a worldview that says God is sovereign. You know, think the only way I can ever win, get this done or get this accomplished is if I'm stern and I'm brash and I'm, you know, basically a potty mouth or whatever. I have to get my point across. And it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe you feel that way because you don't believe in a sovereign God. You know, I I can't control the person's heart anyway, so I have to present the truth and love and hope that God will grant them repentance. And if he doesn't, you know, let everything else be to the glory of God too. So uh, I know I'm still teaching in chapter two here. We're not getting into chapter one. But again, it's because of that word, but, that I wanted to go back and talk about. What is Paul clarifying when he uses that conjunction? What is he adding to? Um, Really, it is this idea that you are to be, gentle kind respectful when you endure opposition or when you encounter opposition uh and you're not to be distracted by rabbit trails of of heresy right so i talked about last week how kind of remembering back to like high school sports high school basketball where we might you know we might play a game on friday and the first three days of the week monday tuesday wednesday those practices were all about how we would perform what we would do how we would execute we're gonna run our offense our defense work on our own conditioning. And then Thursday was all about the other team, right? It was all about kind of the scouting report. Here's what the other team's going to look like. Here's how they're going to play. So be prepared for what's coming. That's pretty much what Paul's doing here, right? So we've got how we're to live. And then when he uses that conjunction, but he's saying, okay, yes, this is all true. Um, You know, be gentle and be kind, endure patient or endure evil patiently. But two things. Number one, uh, don't expect it to be easy, And number two, uh, don't expect uh, others to return the favor necessarily. I mean, that's basically what we have here. So number one, it's going to be difficult. That's in the last days there will come times of difficulty, right? And number two, uh, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, the entire gamut there, right? So yes, this is how you're supposed to behave, but be prepared for what's coming. It's not going to be easy, and and you're going to have people who, who may push back a little bit or maybe more than a little bit in terms of the way that you are teaching and the way you're standing firm in the truth. So, again, it's understanding the context of what was said before so that we can understand why Paul is saying this now. Um, so let's let's then get into the actual text when he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I want to take a little bit of time, and I hope this doesn't get us too far off track, but I do want to take a little bit of time to address the phrase, last days, um, just because I think it can confuse people at times, and maybe this is only in my own experience, but I've heard people kind of take that and twist it, and and, and I want to make sure we're, we're clear on what that means. Um, I, I do believe that this phrase, last days, is referring to the time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second coming, okay? I don't think this is an eschatological statement. So what do I mean by eschatological statement? You know, the study eschatology is simply the study of the end times, Um well, it may be true that the characteristic Paul lays out here will be present when Christ returns, it doesn't appear that's what he has in mind when he writes this to Timothy. And, and again, the reason I say that is I've heard people, not just with this verse, but other verses that use similar phraseology. Uh, you know, They read something like this, and then all of a sudden this text becomes about the rapture or something like that. And I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. A um, couple of reasons I would say that. These types of characteristics, number one, these types of characteristics have always been present in the unregenerate. You know, This is not something that's only going to happen right before Christ returns. This is true in Timothy's day, it's true in our day, and if the Lord tarries, it'll be true 2,000 years from now. So it's not like this is something that we got to watch out for. Like, oh, kids are not obeying their parents. Okay, Christ is probably coming back tomorrow. It's like, you no, know, this is something that's you know, always characterized uh, the unregenerate. Number two, he's writing this letter specifically to Timothy. And again, I know this is applicable to all of us, but keep in mind, his general you know, recipient here is Timothy. Timothy didn't live in the time when Christ returned. So these warnings don't make any sense if this is some type of reference to an end times prediction. Right? He's not saying, you know, be ready for the return of Christ when he says last days. He's saying people are going to behave this way. That's the emphasis. And then number three, um, there are plenty of scriptures that use similar phraseology. None of them seem to be referencing last days or last times as coincident with the return of Christ. So if you look through your Bible, there's a couple of times where this comes up. Um, In Acts 2, chapter 17, Peter is speaking at Pentecost, and he's citing the prophet Joel, and and he's saying this is now coming to fruition. This is being fulfilled. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's, He's saying that that time is now. This is Pentecost, right? So the last days is right now. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, present tense, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the writer of Hebrews apparently believes that he was in the last days of the time he wrote that text. And uh, by the way, I know this is a little bit of an aside, but I think that's the Best proof text for the cessationist view that we don't have prophets and miracle workers anymore because God spoke long ago at many times and in many ways through them. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law, He was the fulfillment of the prophecies, He was the fulfillment of the miracles. And we now have, as Peter says, it the prophetic word made more sure. So, uh, but that was a time ago, and that was now we're in the last days. And this is the last opportunity that people will have to repent there will be no second messiah coming back to die on a cross for the sins of the world right so this is it this is the last days and then finally well two more here first peter 1 verse 20 he this is speaking of jesus he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest just means you know he was made apparent before us in the last times for the sake of you, you know, so jesus christ was made manifest in the last times and then finally first john two eighteen. children it is the last hour And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So as I read the Bible, I think Antichrist is literally just somebody who's Antichrist, right? I mean, that's kind of how it makes it seem to me. You couldn't really be Antichrist in the Old Testament because there's no Christ, right? So we are in the last hour, and we experience all kinds of Antichrists today. Now, I know there's the Antichrist that we generally reference, but um, anybody who really is opposed to Christ is Antichrist, right? And so, anyway, I wanted to take a little bit of time to get into that because uh, I don't want us to think that this is some type of reference to the end times or a prediction about the return of Christ. The last days is really just speaking about the time, the church age. You know, the time after the resurrection of Jesus Christ until His second coming. So, thoughts or comments on that? Questions? Disagreements? going say
3: it was the. From the church age on, so like, why? I mean, this stuff was a part of the culture before the church age, too, right? I, mean, mm-hmm. I assume that that was. So, like, it's just saying it's just going to be to a, a more intense degree, and like, I want to kind of wonder why it is that. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess depending on your eschatology, I, I tend to think it probably will get worse as times get closer to the end. But I, I just think Paul is talking to him, and I I, tell, I do wonder if the writers of Scripture maybe thought that the end was really close. Like maybe they don't they don't know. They might have thought it was coming in twenty years. But he's just saying that you know in these times, this is what you're going to endure because we now have an opposition that we haven't faced before. You know, because while people have always opposed the true God, they never opposed Christ until there was actually Christ. And so now we're in a an epic where people are going to be, you know, behave this way, and they're going to oppose. They're, they're going to have the appearance of, of, and I think that maybe probably was a little bit different um, in the Old Testament. Again, obviously, the Pharisees were very much people who had the appearance of godliness but denied its power. But it's like you're either in the Jewish religion or you weren't. You know, and it, it doesn't seem like it seems like those lines have been blurred since you know the, was the coming of Christ, where now you can kind of identify as a Christian without really. Observing all of the Christian commands—I don't know if that makes any sense at all—but um, it does seem like there's a, more of an—it's an easier way to be able to have an appearance of godliness and deny its power. Whereas, you know, maybe before Christ, there was—it it was harder to be a Jew if you weren't a Jew. Basically, I don't know if that makes any sense. But were you going to say something, Kevin? Well, I think
3: it's—it's it's kind of like what you said. I think, I think when you read the New Testament, I think. Of Paul, I mean, he believed that Christ could come at any time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a sense of expectation that Christ may come mm-hmm. today, tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, in reading that, I think there is sort of this idea that we are we're in the that last, mm-hmm. you know, Christ could come at any time. Mm-hmm. You know, just like today, we we have that same kind of call and
0: expectation. Yeah. But, and, sorry, I didn't mean to write you. That's exactly why I wanted to bring it up. And Carol said it sounds like today, and that's what you know I want people to understand. This is not some future. Like, well, if Christ doesn't come for another thousand years, we don't have to worry about this. It's no, this is the people that we're dealing with today. You know, we're gonna experience the same behavior from those who are not in Christ's kingdom. So it's not speaking of some yet to happen, you know, period of time, but instead we need to recognize that these are the same types of people that we're dealing with. Right? Go ahead, Bennett. I think
2: that in some sense we could also have that. I in recent years, the antenna has gone up. I was talking to a parent yesterday, and he said he didn't understand, he couldn't uh, understand how his 13-year-old son could buy something on Amazon when you are supposed to be 18 or something like that before you could have access. And he was shocked sure mm-hmm. that his 13-year-old son had managed to go through mm-hmm. the system, and the screen had arrived at his doorstep. Mm-hmm. And We were talking about you know how children or young people have become very sophisticated in their thinking, and sometimes for good or for evil. So Mm. in one sense, because of technology and general development, if we could look at 100 years ago, we could argue that now, for instance, if you talk about pornography, Mm. years ago you needed to go to certain places before you could have access. Now you don't need to go there. It's just in your bedroom. It is just chasing you. So we need to be aware of every age. I mean, human nature is human nature. But in our day and age, with access to all the things that are happening, I mean, you don't need to kind of make a lot of effort before you can engage in evil. Mm-hmm. It's just chasing you. <laughs> I am mean, a yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely not only is it getting easier, I, I do tend to kind of believe that these types of things will get worse as we get closer to the return of Christ. But anyway, we're going to say something like?
3: Yeah, along the same lines that Ed says, and this is where I am. Trouble with myself. It says, it says here, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it says, you know, Amazon, all these technologies that have come by recently are so enticing. I mean, um, and I have my faults as well, and and I struggle with the idea of. It says here later on. It says um, uh, avoid such people. And, I think it's really tough for a lot of us to avoid this technology and this pleasure. And, um, even I think there's, for me too, I mean, I, I kind of come from the finance world (laughs) and, um, and and I, and I, and I try, I think I need to do better job at, um, supporting people who support my values. Does that make sense? Um, And I think there's a lot of companies out there that do not support our values Mm -hmm. and I still support them. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think that all of us, and this is done, a lot of imperatives, do this, do this, Mm do this. Here it says pretty straightforward, avoid these people Mm -hmm. and here we are consuming these financial products or these payment products that we shouldn't be consuming.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point, and we could probably pursue it for quite a while about, you know, do we patronize businesses and whatnot that, you know, in, into the things that we would disagree with. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely becoming easier to be associated with them. Go ahead, David.
1: Uh, just to clarify, avoid such people. We're talking about those that call themselves brothers and sisters, right?
0: Yeah, I, I didn't anticipate getting to that today. Um, I think so. I, I'm trying to kind of sort through that a little bit more, but yeah, I think that's what he's saying. I, I, do, I do believe that. I think the harder part there is, and again, we'll talk about this probably in a couple of weeks, is in a culture that has tons of people who call themselves Christians. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, where, where do you draw that line? Are we talking about somebody who just like checks Christian on the census box and you know kind of has a pseudo appearance of godliness and but denies his power? Or are we talking about somebody who's like in the church but like totally causing division and all that? that's the part that is hard for me you know i mean there's there's lots of people in our culture who again because we live in a land where it's not widely persecuted who kind of generally associate with christianity i'm like all right am i not supposed to even like go get supper with them or is it you know more talking about people that are specifically in the church because it seems like in timothy's day you're, you're talking about people who are kind of attaching themselves to this gospel message and then distorting it and and that's who he's kind of fighting against so I don't know. Maybe come back in a couple weeks. and I'll have a better answer. But anybody else have thoughts or questions on that particular verse? I think in the context, and again, like like you know, Jay put it out, and we we discuss. Um,
1: there are things that Paul writes about that are applicable to uh, to, to all. I think, mm-hmm. but it it does
3: seem though that Paul is specifically targeting um, the idea of false teachers in the mm-hmm. church. You know, those mm-hmm. who are. Uh, sort of claiming to be speakers of God, uh, teaching God's word, mm-hmm. et cetera, but have these false, uh, false teachings that aren't mm-hmm. consistent with sound, you know, doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, yeah, it just seems that that perhaps would be speaking directly to those who would be teachers in okay. the church and, mm-hmm. and how Timothy should think about that and his association
0: sure. uh, with them. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, I can't remember whether there's something else we're going to talk about here, but seems like I had something else that brought to my attention. But yeah, I think I think that all makes sense. Um, I so, well, I was just going to read kind of the, the the commentary here on the last day. well? This this commentary simply says this phrase refers to the age the time since the first coming of the Lord Jesus. So it's kind of kind of reaffirming what I've, what I've talked about. Moving on to the next phrase there, and I don't know how much we'll get into this today, but just the times of difficulty. So again, I wanted to simply read from the John MacArthur commentary here to uh, give some understanding of what's being ta- talked about. Difficulty, the word difficulty, is used to describe the savage nature of two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, 28. The word for times had to deal with epics rather than the clock or calendar time. Such savage, dangerous eras or epics will increase in frequency and severity as the return of Christ approaches. The church age is fraught with these dangerous movements, accumulating strength as the end nears. So again, remember, Paul is preparing Timothy for what is to come, and he's saying uh, this isn't going to be easy. You know, Times are going to get difficult. And so, yes, do all this stuff that I've talked to you about here in chapter 2, but but be prepared for what is to come. A um, couple of points on this. On well, one main point, Th- this really flies in the face of any prosperity gospel teaching. Um, I, know, I know we we talk about that from time to time. You know the the idea of the prosperity gospel. If you come to Jesus, you're going to be, you know, healthy, wealthy. Um, I I don't even think that's really what I see mo- most of today. It seems to be more of I'll call it, for lack of a better term, the self-fulfillment gospel. You know, I mean. I don't know too many people that are buying the idea that if, you know, I give $100, I'll, I'll find $1,000 in my mailbox in the next couple of weeks, which, you know, you used to kind of see on some of those televangelist commercials. It's more the idea that through Christianity, I can realize my fullest potential and I can, I can be my best self, right? And it, it seems to be kind of a life enhancement gospel rather than just you're going to be rich or you're not going to have cancer type of thing. And um, I think anybody who's serious about the Bible at all could, could not read – 2 Timothy chapter 3, and come away with that perspective. He's clearly making the case that if you come to Christ, there's going to be some serious opposition. And and again, I know he is talking to teachers. He's talking to Timothy as a preacher. But in a way, we're all ambassadors of the Word. right? We're all to teach. We're all to evangelize. So I think it does apply to just any layperson in the church that if you are going to faithfully be a minister of the Word of God, there are going to be times of difficulty. In verse 12, just something else we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. He says, "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." You know, basically, Paul wants to make sure that Timothy is not surprised when these things occur, right? And we shouldn't be either. It's, it reminds me of First Peter. I think it's, um, I think it's First Peter four twelve. If I'm not mistaken. I might be the wrong chapter and verse, but where Peter says, "Don't be surprised at the fiery trials, as if something strange were happening to you." You know, this is not. Something that should shock you. Um, unfortunately, I think if you surveyed most of the Christian, I'll say Christian loosely there, Christian um, citizens of our country, you would, you would probably find that it would surprise them to learn that that's, that's actually the teaching of the Bible. Now Jesus said it when he said that, you know, don't, don't be deceived, that, you know, if they hated me first, they're going to hate you also. A servant's not greater than his master, right? So we need to be prepared for opposition. And yet when we face the opposition, we need to go back to the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy in how to respond. To that opposition we're to uh, be kind to everyone teach patiently endure the evil correct our opponents with gentleness and perhaps god may grant them repentance and i would add to that pray for their souls right and be uh, in prayer for those who oppose the truth but recognize that vengeance belongs to the lord and and let him right the wrongs at the end of at the end of this life so um in closing you know that is the good news is that jesus will right every wrong he has already paid for the wrongs of those who would believe in him at the cross and that if you believe in that you know you have eternal life so any last thoughts or questions before i close this up uh today go ahead yeah, about the
3: way in which uh there will be a lot of difficulties the company following jesus uh i would encourage us to be clear about that in our evangelism and especially as we have in those kids now, obviously we beg and plead with people trust in jesus but also communicate that if you do trust in jesus they're going to be Difficulties in this life that you wouldn't experience if you didn't trust in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's more than worth it. because uh, you don't want to uh, kind of tell people that they were good as a different mythology, and they're like, Wait, I didn't expect this persecution. I didn't mean you know why didn't you tell me about these things? So I think we should be upfront about that. You know, stress that it's more than worth it. I mean, we you know, we know God, we have the spirit, we have eternal life and all of that, but at the same time you should be have there are definitely will challenges that are over persecution or problems that you wouldn't have if you didn't follow Jesus. Because otherwise,
0: people would feel like you tricked them into doing something. Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I would also hope that obviously, each situation is unique. And sometimes, you know, you're evangelizing somebody you might never see again that you might not be able to do this. But making sure they're a part of a good local church where that's taught, you know, it's, it's sad to see so many people who, maybe if you think about the parable of the soils, had that initial, you know, energy of, yeah, I want to believe, but then they kind of get plugged into the wrong place, and over time they die out because they never got fed what they needed to grow. Go ahead. I think one
2: of the things we highlighted was the idea that the greatest strength of the gospel comes from Christianity itself. Sure. And sometimes that is something we don't acknowledge. We assume that the culture, and the politicians, and the uh, Hollywood people, mm-hmm. they are the greatest pastor, you know? it's within Christianity itself. And I think if we begin to think along those lines, then we we'll pray more for some churches and things like that. Because there are a lot of people who, when they are looking for a church, oh, I want them a church that is big. Where mm-hmm. people are, you know, everybody is good, you know, mm-hmm. don't look at the doctrinal, you know, position and the way, not just in theory, but in practice and things like that. Yeah. And it's a very dangerous position to be in because when you assume that you have right, you are very far from the kingdom. of God. I think personally, that's a very strong combination.
0: Yes, and that sums it up well. To be careful who you associate with, particularly as it pertains to your teachers, leaders, and um, you know the churches they identify with. So, uh, the thing. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's that's a great point. You know, when you read Paul's letters, I he doesn't really talk about political environment mm-hmm. outside of the church right. and how the churches kind of think about that you know what i mean like mm-hmm. and uh he just just doesn't really get into that
1: mm-hmm. um ignore the, the other writers you know so um yeah that's a great point you know what you do read about those
0: being yeah, aware right. of those in the church who are false teachers and who may deceive people you know, leave people away from church. Mm-hmm. was it was it Justin the Martyr that said that the persecution is <clears throat> the lifeblood of the church. I can't remember who said that, but you know that's the opposite of what we're talking. You know, when, when things start to get tough, then you'll find out who the true church is. And when things are kind of, let's say, not as tough, you know, you have this false appearance of godliness that just tears apart the church. You know. Um, all right. Well, that's all for today. So let's wrap up in prayer, and then we'll dismiss. And I pray that uh, you would work through the lives of the individuals here. I pray first of all, for those who do not yet know you, that they would recognize the hope that they have in you, if they would repent and believe in your son and what he's done for us. But Lord, if we've received that, I pray that we would recognize the high calling that we have to um, endure evil patiently and to uh, correct people gently and yet pray for their souls to be saved and recognize that by your spirit, you can do uh, miracles in the way of salvation. And we pray for those right now, for the individuals that, um, that uh, we have interactions with family members, friends, I know specific ones that have been on the prayer list that uh, maybe do oppose the truth, even if they don't do so aggressively. We pray that um, through the relationships they have with those in this room, you would work uh, by your word and by your spirit to convict them of their sin and bring them to a knowledge of the truth and pray that you would use us in this way for your glory. Amen.